0: Seated. And I'm going to come over here and grab something. I, I didn't want to grab it during the prayer. I don't think you guys could have handled that. So, oh, no. <clears throat> and, uh, get up. Hey, good morning again. All right. So, um, this morning we're kicking off a new series uh, called Cycles A Journey Through Judges. And this is going to be a series where we are walking through the book of Judges. And before I go any further, I want to say this. I hope uh, if you already had your reading schedule that you picked up last week that you've been able to read Judges 1 and 2. If you have not picked that up, uh, on your way out, stop at these credentials right outside there. We've got um, these handouts where it's a reading schedule. Because as I preach through Judges over the next several uh, weeks, I'm not covering every single verse, but I'm taking more of what what I'm calling an episodic approach. I'm going episodes. And so some weeks, like today, we're going to cover two entire chapters. Next week we covered six verses. You know? And so uh, if you are reading through that schedule, uh, there's a couple things that will happen. One, you will have read through the, the text that's going to be preached before I preach it, which is great for you because you've already started to think about what's going on here and what kind of questions do I have about that. And so, if you follow this plan, uh, you'll get through. By the time we reach December, you will have read through the Book of Judges. Now, the other thing that that's going to do for you, again, is because I'm not covering every single verse, and, and there's not going to be um, a, there's going to be certain where I don't hit every single thing that you want me to hit on. And that's going to leave you frustrated, some of you, and wondering whether I even noticed that, and maybe that's why I didn't cover it. Maybe I'm not thorough and detailed. But I'm going to let you have a little secret. Um, I, I have a specific purpose when I get up in church.
1: And after praying and studying, what I'm trying to do
0: is I'm trying to, to kind of focus the, the sermon to what's that one thing? What's that one thing that if, if you've got nothing else, what is it that you can walk away with from here? What is it that I think God is wanting to say to us as a church from these verses? And so a lot of times, once I kind of narrow that down, there's things I do have to cut out because, man, I, I only get like 30 or 35 minutes. 40, Forty-five sometimes six you, know. So um, if you're reading that, then that's going to help you kind of get the bigger picture. And let me throw this out there. If you have questions along the way, shoot those to us, and we'll answer those in another format for you, okay? Because I guarantee you judges will raise questions if you're reading through it and thinking about it. So get that. And then on the back of that, there's some some tools for you. If you want to journal, maybe you don't consider yourself a journal journaler, that's fine. But maybe you've always wanted to start, but you just never had a cool enough journal to do that. Well, take a look at the ones who've got out there, and if they strike your fancy, then grab one, and let that be your first journal ever, okay? That'd be a gift to you. So please do that. And then the other thing that you'll get out of this is if you're reading through ahead of time, you're going to get far more out of the sermon, the messages, than anyone else will that, who hasn't read that, okay? Because you're already in it and thinking about it, and, and so you're not hearing it for the first time. So if you didn't get the chance to read chapters 1 and 2 this week, no worries, because next week I only have you slotted to read chapter 3. So you can just kind of play some catch-up. And the good news is, so if you read chapters 1 and 2, you're right on schedule for today's message. But next week, you're supposed to have read chapter 3. But I'm going to be preaching a couple of sermons from chapter 3. So you'll actually be ahead of the game for a few weeks. And then later on, we'll kind of merge back together and catch up. Okay, so make sure you grab that on the way. Why Judges? Why Judges? Because if you know anything about the book of Judges, you know it's not a very happy book. It's not a book that you read and you go, man, I'm just on fire for God after reading that. Like, I can't believe God is so awesome. Like, it's not one of those books. It doesn't get you pumped up. It's not like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me type of thing, right? Instead, what you see in the book of Judges is a lot of darkness. It's kind of depressing a lot of the times. Uh, It it can be very discouraging, you know, as as you read it because you're watching people who just can't Seem to get it right, and, and things are just getting worse and worse and worse, so uh, why judges? Why now? Well, I, I think, and my hope is as we go through the book of Judges, that a couple things will maybe happen for you. One, uh, I hope it changes the way we view God, and for some of you, that's going to be changing the view you've had of God your entire life, and you're going to see sides of God that you don't even want to believe exist, but now you're going to be forced to wrestle with and what that means. And what I'm hoping that's going to do for us is take our focus off of ourselves, because if we're honest, most of us are very lee-centered, and we like to think about God as we think he should be, and God should act the way I think he should act, and he should do what I think he should do. And when we get to that spot, we're just spiraling down. But what judges will do is lift up our eyes and say, you know, God, God stands all and fall apart from me. It will reshape our view of God. I hope to, um, you know, there's, there's some of you who maybe you've grown up in church and, then you've heard some fantastic Bible stories about the heroes that show up in judges, and they're like your childhood heroes. And, man, you just have always grown up thinking, these are the guys to model and emulate. And as we go through the book of Judges, you're going to find out that they are not the guys to model and emulate. It's going to ruin your perspective of some of your childhood biblical heroes. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to that for you. Because what you're going to see instead is that God uses people who have, um, you know, some sensual addictions. I see little ears in here, so put the stronger words in there. Some sensual addictions where they cannot control themselves, right? And, and we've got people who are cowards. We, we've got people who are hiding behind others. We've got people who are hesitant to follow after God. We've got people who we would consider outlaws and whose character doesn't match up to what we think God should be using uh, or the type of people that God should be using. And so you and I are going to look at these people and we're going, God, you shouldn't be using these types of people. But yeah, we're going to see God use people that you and I would never use to accomplish the purpose of His plan. It's going to wreck the way we think about how God should act. And then I think, too, as we go through the book of Judges, we're going to to see a lot of uh, uh, relevancy to our current events, our current times. I think you're going to see that even though the stories and the things that we've seen that just happened thousands of years ago, you're going to be reading it going, well, that's not too far off from today. That guy reminds me of that other guy, you know, that we're seeing all the time. You're going to be reading that, and you're going to be going, well, that's hitting that's a little too close to home. Like, who read my mail last night? Who, has my wife been talking to someone? I like it when you guys come and ask me that. My wife come up and ask me, tell you something. Nope. Nope, that's just the word of God. And so it's going to do that for us. So I'm looking forward to it. Cycles. Why cycles? Because you're going to see real early on, and we'll dive into this one really deep next week, uh, about the cycles. But you're going to see throughout the book of Judges this cycle, and you're going to see yourself in this cycle. You're going to see your own life. You're going to see our country, maybe churches. It's, it's going to be really neat. You're going to be seeing cycles of dryness and cycles of revival. You're going to be seeing cycles of disobedience where People are walking away from the Lord, and they're going to go, yeah, that's that part of my life, but then they turn back to the Lord, and you're going to see this just repeated over and over, and through the book of Judges, you're actually going to see it get worse, and worse, and worse, and that will either give you great hope, because they're whole much worse off the email, or you're going to say, hey, well, this guy sounds like someone I could spend some time with, right? so, cycles, alright, but we'll get into that next week, this week, Judges chapter 1 and 2, if you need a Bible, grab one, page 267 is where we're going to be this morning, and, uh, with, with, with no further ado, we're going to move on here. So Judges chapter 1 and 2, and uh, we're going to uh, start with chapter 2. But let me give you a little bit of run-up in history here because uh, we're, we're, we're kind of uh, jumping into a couple books in the Bible. So what you need to know is this. So God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, and says, boom, you bear my image. Now go and represent me and, and don't eat of that tree. And, and then Adam and Eve, they disobey. Right? It's good until they don't. And, and, as long as they obey, but then they disobey, boom, sin enters into the human race, and things start to deteriorate. In chapter 4 of Genesis, you see the first murder. And, and, and then as you continue to read the genealogies in chapter 5 that you're tempted to skip over you, what you'll learn is that people die, and, and that, that life is starting to get temporary and even shorter, and that sin having its impact on the world is that where once sin was not present in the human race, and people were, were not going to die, and their bodies were not going to decay, and now sin is starting to have its impact. And you see that. And then you come to chapter 6, and you're thinking, is God going to fix this? And this guy named Noah shows up, and we think, man, that might be the guy. That might be God's man who He's going he's to redeem this all. And, and we see God save Noah and his family but destroy everyone else. And then we, we see Noah fail. And we think, wow, if Noah can't do it, he can and then we keep going, and we see that God raises up a guy named Abraham, and it's through Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 where God says, I'm going to work through you. I'm going to bring a nation about through you. And it's through that nation that I'm going to, I'm going to draw everyone else to me. Everybody else is going to learn about me, the unique God, the true God, through this, this nation, Abraham. And so Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 70 people in his family in the time of the famine that gets in the land. And so Jacob and his seventy family members, they go into Egypt, where one of his sons, Joseph, has been elevated to a high command. And so his people now get to be fed for the next seven years during Genesis in. Exodus opens up second book of your Bible we find out there's a new pharaoh in town. Someone who doesn't know Joseph and so now God's people, uh, Jacob's family, those 70 or however many they are, at that point they get put into slavery, and for the next 430 years they're enslaved in Egypt. And they come out, having gone in 70 people, they come out over a million people, and we see that God is there, even in the midst of slavery. But as he delivers them out of Egypt, he's leading them to this land where a while back he said to Abraham, look at this land, this is what I'm going to give you. So now God's finally, it's come to a point where he's bringing them into this land, and so he's leading them out. Moses is at the helm there, and he's leading them out, and Moses uh, gets this law. We know it as the Old Testament law. Sometimes we call it the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. The Ten Commandments sums this thing up. And what this is, is, is God giving his people a law. Now, it's not God saying, I like to be in control and have power over you, so here's some rules for you to follow just to remind you that I'm in control. That's not what God was doing with the law. Instead, what God was doing with the law was revealing His character to His people. So that you start your one-year Bible plan in January, and you get to the book of Leviticus, and you crash just like 90% of all the people can do, and you stop at Leviticus because you're reading, Don't eat shrimp. And what's up with that? Bacon? Off, off limits? No way. And you're reading all these little rules that you're going, But why does that matter? And you're tempted to think, This doesn't apply to me. Instead, what you need to be seen is that God is holy. He's all together different, all together unique. And every one of those minute details of the law is God revealing to his people, I am different than the other gods that you've been exposed to. I am different than all those idols that you, you've you seen people worship. And all those things that all these other nations do, I don't want you doing that. I want you to live differently so that people will know my character by the way you live and by the relationship we have to so then he talks about this relationship they're going to have. He says, look, I'm leading you into this land, and I've given you this law. Here's the deal. When you're in the land, obey the law. Live according to the law, and you're going to have water for crops. You'll never go hungry. Your enemies will be uh, at peace with you. There will be rest in the land. And he says, but if you don't obey that law, if you do go chase after other gods, and, and, and you, you choose to worship them, then you're not going to have rain." and your crops will not grow. And and the people that surround you, these, these nations that you're about to drive out, that I'm going to drive out for you, they're actually going to come back and take you over. Some of them are going to take you away. And he so, says, so this is how it's going to be as we live uh, in this relationship now that he's making this, with his people. So then Joshua takes over after Moses dies, and Joshua's the guy that, if you remember the song, some of you grew up in church, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Okay, right. So what that is, is Joshua's now leading the people across the Jordan River into the land. And Jericho is that first place, that first battle where God's teaching his people, I'm going to fight these battles for you if you trust me. So he gives them this weird kind of plan. It, you know, it's not a plan that you would follow if, you, if you're a commanding officer. You wouldn't typically tell your people to do this kind of plan. But God says to Joshua, the general of Israel, he says, hey, I want you to go in. just for seven days. I just want you to walk around that city. Just walk around it. Don't talk too much. Don't make a lot of noise. Just walk. Okay? And then on that seventh day, Joshua, I want you to walk around, you know, a couple more times. And on that last time, I tell you to walk around it. Then, and only then, then I want you to make a whole lot of noise. I want everybody to scream. I want you to blow your trumpets. And and that's how I'm going to bring down Jericho. And you're reading this and you go, man, that makes absolutely no sense. And that's exactly where God wanted his people are you willing to trust me when things don't seem to make sense to you? And so they learn that lesson as they walk through around that city and the, the walls just kind of tumble down. And then Joshua dies off and they pick up and judge. Judges chapter 1, what we see now is Israel, these 12 tribes of Israel, these 12 family groups. Now, uh, they, they all have lost their centralized leaders. Who goes first, God? Who do you want to use to lead out into the land to go and drive out the people because God had told his people I want you to drive all the people out in that land. Don't leave anybody in that land, he tells them. He tells them I, I don't want you to make any kind of agreements with the people in the land that you're living in. I don't want you to marry the people and I don't want you to, 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 to give your, your daughters in marriage to these people. Drive them out, he says. Alright, God, so who goes first? Judges chapter 1 God says, well, Judas supposed to go first. Back fact, in Genesis chapter 48, God has revealed Judah is the one who is going to hold the scepter. Judah is going to be the one that God going to continue to bring his plan of redemption through. So Judah, you go first. So as you're reading through chapter 1, you see the, the, the tribe of Judah, they go to their brother Simeon. Hey, hey, Simeon, so we're, we're supposed to go up first. Hey, why don't you come with us? We'll do this thing together. And then when we defeat these guys together, then we'll go and help you with yours. Sounds like a reasonable thing. It seems like it might work. And so they have success, and they go and they do that. And then they come across this group of people who have iron chariots. And these are the only people that the tribe of Judah could not drive out because, they, after all, they had iron chariots. That'd be like taking an infantry unit against a tank, a tank battalion. You know, you, you can't do that. I mean, I know there's movies made about doing that, but you just don't typically advise your, your infantry unit, hey, guys, we're going up against tanks. That's what it would be like. Israel has no chariots. These people have of iron. The advantage is unfair. it makes sense why they wouldn't drive them out. And then what you start to read as you go through chapter 1 is each of the tribes start to then go and drive the people out. But along the way, there's, each of these tribes had some issues. See, not everybody gets driven out. Not everybody is, is kicked out of the land or, or uh, all their idols destroyed. Instead, what starts to happen is some of these tribes say, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. They start saying to themselves, it doesn't make a lot of sense that we would drive all these people out when I mean, we could just put them to work for us. I mean, that's what we've been doing for the last 430 years all of our families. Now it's time for someone else to do this. And so some of the tribes, they start to, to leave some of the people in the land, and they put them to forced labor. They become slaves. So well, that seems smart, practical. We need to get more done and less work on your back. Others of them, they, they can't drive them out, and so they leave them in the city. You know? And so we start to see this pattern in there. Not all the people get driven out. You and I look at him and and we think, you know, that seems understandable. You and I look at him and we say, hey, they were fairly successful. You know, Israel did a lot of what God told them to do. Here's what God says about it when we come to chapter 2. And it changes the way we see things. Chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord angelic messenger went up from Gilgal to Bochum. He said, I brought you up from Egypt and led you into the land I had solemnly promised to give you to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my agreement with you, but you must not make an agreement with the people who live in this land. You should tear down the altars where they worship, But you have disobeyed me. Why would you do such a thing? And at that time, I also warned you, if you disobey, I will not drive out the Canaanites before you. They will ensnare you. And their gods will lure you away. When the Lord's messenger finished speaking these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. And they named that place open and offered sacrifices to the Lord there. So here's the first thing this morning I want you to get. Partial obedience is disobedience. When it comes to the relationship with God, partial obedience is disobedience. Now if you're a parent, you get this. Because let's say you say to your kids, I want you to go clean up the floor in your room. Uh, so they go and they come back, Mom, i I cleaned up the floor in my room. And what you really were telling them was, I want you to put things where they go, right? You, you're trying to tell them, clean the room, right? But you said floor, that was your mistake, right? So they come back and you go and you look in the room, man, that floor is clean, pristine. To look at their bed. Everything's on the bed. Or you open the closet. And everything just comes falling out. What just happened there? They did exactly what you said. But they didn't fully obey what you were asking them to do when you said, I want you to go clean your room. Pick up the things off the floor. And all they heard was pick up the things off the floor. Okay, Mom, I'll do that. But they didn't clean the room. How many of you are going to let your kids get away with that? Well, son, yep, yep, daughter, you absolutely obeyed. Great. No, you're going to say, that's not what I meant. That, that's not what I was telling you. Do and You know that full well. You're going to hold them accountable because even though they did what you said, they partially obeyed, you know what's in their heart. They disobeyed. Partial obedience is not obedience. It's disobedience. And when it comes to God, that doesn't fly. So you're wondering, why do I have this pool with me? See, because it's like, it's the day where the water is filled up in this pool and you're not sure you really want to get in it or not. And so... You know, you kind of step a foot in. Yeah, this is nice. Yeah, it's high out here. This foot right here is feeling so good like right nice. But I'm not sure I really want to commit my full self to this foot. I might not. Or, you know, but, you know I, I I may not be able to. And so you're kind of halfway in and you're halfway out. But well, when it comes to following God and relationship with God, this is unacceptable. Partial obedience is the same as disobedience. See, what God wants from us is I want you all in. Give me everything you've got. Give me every every area of your life. Submit to me all things. See, some people, they're out here, and they're like, yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with God. Okay, fine. And then there's some people who are in here like, man, I'm all in. But most of us probably live our lives like this. pack in, pack out. Because I want to hold on to these areas, God. I'm not sure I want to commit. Right? And so as we're reading through here, we, we, we read that uh, if they, they will ensnare you if you leave them. How many of you know when you live life like this, there's something I want to hold on to. I struggle with lusting after food and lusting after women. But I, I just can't seem to, to stop the desire to chase success. And, and so you leave some of those things in your life. So yeah, you, you struggle with eating certain food, but you're not willing to send out the passion completely because it might be that one time where you leave that dove chocolate square, right? Right, be, And then that dove chocolate square, then you left it there, and now you hold that, right? It becomes a snare to you. Or you're not quite willing to go all the way, you know you know you shouldn't be looking at certain things, so you put some software on the computer, you block it, right? And you, you, you've got an accountability partner but you're not quite willing willing to get rid of some of those photos or some of those pictures or some of those things. You're not really ready to defriend those people who post those photos on Facebook or Instagram. You know it's going to get you. And so you kind of got to get that clear. And it becomes your shame. Because you're not all in. Partial obedience is disobedience. But what God wants from us is all in. Because when it comes to obeying God, it's an all in thing or it's a not in all. We go on. And we look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Why is God asking these people to be that? Seems kind of unfair. You and I are asking questions about God and questioning his purpose. God, Why would you do that? Deuteronomy 18. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, you must not learn the abhorrent practices of these nations. There must never be found among you anyone who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, anyone who practices divination, an omen reader, a soothsayer, a sorcerer, one who casts spells one who conjures a spirit, a practitioner of the occult, or a necromancer. Whoever does these things is abhorrent to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God is about to drive them out before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Those nations that you are about to dispossess, listen to omen readers and diviners, but the Lord your God has not given you permission to do such things. God is not being unfair by driving out these people. God is just being just bringing upon them the punishment that they have earned over many, many years. And this is just one verse that shows that you can read it in Exodus. You can read it in Leviticus. You can read it in Deuteronomy. And what you're going to see is God tells Israel, look, I'm not dragging these people out because you're something special. I, you, you're not extra righteous. I'm not doing it because you've impressed me. Because I'm doing it because they've earned this. I'm, I'm giving them the punishment for their wickedness. And so God is not... Uh, uh, commissioning some kind of genocide here, some kind of ethnic cleansing. Because as you read through, you're going to find out God, God is perfectly okay with allowing people who are not from uh, Jacob's line, who are not Israelites, to live. Back in Jericho, Rahab lived because she responded to God and faith. She she was not against God's people, and God allowed her to be grafted in to the people. And as you, as you read through Judges chapter 1 and 2, you're going to read that Judah had a group of people who settled with them. They were called the Kenites. That was Moses' in-laws. They were not Israelites. And so God was allowing them to continue living. And you're going to see that. God's not supporting some kind of ethnic cleansing or genocide, and nor is this some kind of imperialistic uh, conquest or, or God trying to, on a crusade trying to gain more territory and power for himself because along the way he says this, his people don't thunder. You don't need their stuff. I will be your provision. So contrary to what some say, God is not here trying to increase his empire. He doesn't have a need for that. What God is doing is he's bringing justice upon the people that live in that land currently for the things you just read and more. And it's what they've earned over hundreds of years. And God is simply raising up Israel against them and he's using them. To do that? That probably doesn't satisfy a lot of you shooting your questions. Alright, so we move on then. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. And we learn that when we do disobey God, disobedience to God has disastrous consequences. God takes sin seriously. So we look at it when we say this, when Joshua dismissed the people, the Israelites went to their allotted portions of territory, intending to take possession of the land. The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's life. flew into this, listen to the timing, and as long as the elderly men who outlived him remained alive. These men had witnessed all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the Lord's servant, died at the age of 110. The people buried him in his allotted land in Kenna, here in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. That entire generation passed away. That entire generation generation passed away. A new generation grew up that had not personally experienced the Lord's presence or seen what he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil before the Lord by worshipping the Baals. They abandoned the Lord God of their ancestors who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods, the gods of the nations who lived around them. They worshipped them and made the Lord angry. They abandoned the Lord and worshipped Baal and the the Lord was furious with Israel and handed them over to robbers who plundered them. They turned them over to their enemies who lived around them. They could not withstand their enemy's attacks. Whenever they went out to fight, the Lord did them harm just as he had warned, and solemnly vowed he would do. They suffered vividly. Disobedience to God brings disastrous consequences. And so you see that God is doing really true to his word. He disobeyed in the crown and the way that people to judge you. We see that picture church. I want to go back here, back to uh, verse 10 there. An entire generation died out, and a new generation rises up. They have not seen the Lord do the things that the previous generation did. Maybe your translation says it was so, they did not know the Lord. You need to know the Lord. That's not, uh, that's not them uh, say, uh, the scripture saying that they didn't know about God. They knew about God, just like you and I know about God. We have Bibles. We can read about God. We have people who teach us about God. Every one of you in this room, including myself, we know about God. What the scripture is saying is they didn't know God intimately. They didn't know him personally. God was not real to them. And I wonder how many of you, God has become not real to you. Because he hasn't worked the way you think he should work. He hasn't shown up where you think he should show up. He, he, he's done some things that you question and maybe maybe you you've been in this spot for a while, maybe you're just kinda of hitting up against it now, but now all of a sudden you know about God, but he's no longer real to you. And now you're looking elsewhere for things that God was meant to supply to you. How quickly did that happens! I would see just a part of a generation. It takes one generation one generation failing to pass things down with the next, and that next generation failing to receive the seed of heaven. It happens so quickly. Disobedience leads to disastrous consequences. I could camp on that, but we've got to go on here. And so um, you see that the, the Israelites, they were bringing this on themselves. They were abandoning themselves uh, you know, to, to idols instead. And so we go on in chapter, uh, to chapter 2, verse 16 now. And we see this. Even though disobedience to God is... Brings the vastest God is generous, sure. with grace. and you're going to see this throughout the book of Judges because many of you might think uh, that that um, when you read about God in the Old Testament, that's not the God of grace, different God, and then you read about God in the New Testament, God of grace, Jesus, all loving, and you think they're different people. And to you, I say that's heresy, wrong, you're mistaken. God is the same God today, and yesterday, and tomorrow. He didn't all of a sudden become gracious in the New Testament. He's always been gracious. If God changes, then that's no God at all. And so in the book of Judges, you're going to see His grace show up. And he's generous with it. So look at me at verse 16. The Lord raised up leaders who delivered them. Who raised up leaders? The Lord. The Lord raised up deliverers who, who delivered them from these robbers. But they did not obey their leaders prostitute themselves to other gods and worship them. They quickly turned aside the path that their ancestors had walked. Their ancestors had obeyed the Lord's command, but they did not. And I'm stop there for a minute and say this. This is like, uh, you know, those uh, uh, wartime salvations. These are like, I'm in the trenches. God, get me out of this, and I will follow you type of moments. God raised up a deliverer, and that it didn't stick because the people continued to disobey. How many of you, and me included, we've been in that spot. God, save me from this, and I'll follow you. And it was good for a little while, but then it doesn't take long until so we get right back on that time. The people in the book of Judges are no different than us. We go on verse 18, when the Lord raised up leaders for them, the Lord was with each leader and delivered the people from their enemies while the leader remained alive. The Lord felt sorry for them when they cried out in agony because of what their harsh oppression did. So we're going to hit on this more next week, but do you notice that as long as the deliverer was alive, the people had rest. But when they died, the people went back to disobey. And you see this, the Lord felt sorry for them when they cried out. Here's what you need to know. That is not a crying out of repentance. This is not people saying, we realize we've gone astray God and we're turning back to you. Please forgive us. This is the cry of your child when they realize they've been caught doing wrong and they're sorry they got caught. But they're not sorry they did wrong. That's what's going on here. And yet, God is generous with his grace because he feels sorry for his people even in that moment. Now, I don't know about you. In my parenting role, if I have special insights to my kid's heart and I see, you're just sorry you got caught, but I know you don't think what you did is wrong. I'm going to leave you in the boiling pot a little longer till you learn your lesson. I'm going to turn the heat up a little bit because it's good for you to learn now. The thing I'm not God. The thing you're not God. Because what God does is... He so sorry for his people when they cry out because the consequences of their sin, their choices, is too much for them to bear. God is generous in his grace. That's undeserved. We go on. When a leader died, the next generation would again act more wickedly than the previous one. They would follow after other gods, worshiping them and bowing down to them. They did not give up their practices or their stubborn ways. The Lord was furious with Israel, so he said, This nation has violated the terms of the agreement. I made with their ancestors by disobeying them.
1: So I will no longer remove them
0: before them for any of the nations that Joshua left uncomfortably died. Joshua left those nations to test it here. I wanted to see whether or not the people would carefully walk in the path marked out by the Lord as their ancestors would carefully to do. This is why the Lord permitted these nations to remain and did not conquer them immediately. He did not hand them over to Joshua. And so we've got to wrap this up here, but here's what we've got going on, there. God wants obedience. He wants commitment. And it's either I'm, in, I'm all in or I'm not in at all. And too many of us are content to be one foot in, one foot out because we don't quite want to let go. We're not quite sure God is enough. We're not quite sure God is the one who's going to satisfy those deep longings, who, who I can lean upon, who I can trust to provide, who, who, I, can, who I can lean on as my walk. We're not quite sure, and so we want to keep our other options open just in case God fails us. Just in case God doesn't show up like we want him to show up or do it like we want him to do it, we're going to keep one foot in. But God says, obedience to me is an all-in thing or not in at all. And that's what you see happening in Judges 1 and 2, is we see these cycles. The Israelites, it seems like they're being successful. You and I might consider them successful, but God has the final verdict. And He says, no, you're you're only being partially obedient to me. You look good on the outside. But you're not good on the inside. And God's people can't have that. We, we can't reflect God accurately when we are part in part out. When we're holding on to the things of the world, holding on to things that we've sought comfort in and, and hope in, and then kind of testing God out a little bit. That's what I want you all in. I want you all in. And so as we go through the book of Judges, you're going to find that these deliverers, they come, and then they die. And, and, and God's people are no longer at rest. And then another deliverer comes, and then he dies, and God's people are no longer at rest. And it's going to leave you longing for permanent redemption. And you will not find it in the heroes of judgment. But where you will find it, and the judgment point you is the hero that God has set. The deliverer that God has raised up, who died once for all, And it's stuck. Jesus, who overcame death and rose victoriously, having died in the place of people who earned the punishment, the type of stuff you're seeing God do, now God has said, I'm no longer going to give you what you deserve, instead I'm giving it to Jesus, who's taking your place. He's the deliverer that I have raised up, and he's going to die in your place, so you don't have to take what, what you've earned. He gets it. And then when he dies and rises from dead, if you will trust in him, and I'll give you for healing. God is generous with his grace. And judges is going to continuously point us. And we don't find salvation for people. We find it only in God. And the deliverer, a healer. Father, we're excited to see what you want to say to us this morning. In the coming weeks, through the book of Judges, speak to us, God, say what we need to, to hear. Get us heart set up and ready to receive what you are going to say All right, guys, I've held you a little long. I'm sorry for that. Thank you for being here this morning. And if you're able, will you please stand? We will discuss. There's not a thing that goes unnoticed by God. Not a thought you've had. Not you've done, not a heart attitude, and yet he still wants you. And he offers you life instead of death. So choose life and go from here and, and breathe life into others. So do that in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you guys next week.